Let me show you how it's done. Well, well, welcome. You are listening to The Drop, Drop, Drop. podcast on business, tech, and influence. I am one half of The Drop, Tam Danier, head of strategy. I lead insights and product. I focus on tech, in particular, solutions that solve real-world problems. And I'm here with... My name is B. Pagels Minor. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I have been a product manager for over a decade at some of the world's most well-respected companies like Sprout Social, Apple, and Netflix. I've led teams that built important parts of the App Store, launched games at Netflix, built listening at Sprout Social. All in all, my DNA is fully being a product manager. Hi, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. Bob Glazer is on the podcast today. Now, a couple different things. Bob actually used to be my client when I was at a company, and then he was my boss. So he literally recruited me from my very cushy gig, my very cushy, very first tech gig into his company. And in so many ways, I followed Bob, you know, whether it's his podcast, his website, his books, because I'm just so fascinated by the way that he thinks. And so let me give you like a, the, the the whole shebang. So I call him Bob. Other people, his government name is Robert Glazer. He's the founder and chairman of the Board of Acceleration Partners. He's a, It's the premier global partner marketing agency that has won over 30 awards for its world-class company culture. He leads a fully remote team of over 270 people. Robert is also the author of Friday Ford, an inspirational newsletter that reaches over 200,000 readers worldwide each week. In fact, my wife and myself, we, we, we read it um, and we talk about it all the time. And he's also the number one Wall Street Journal bestselling author of several books, including Elevate, Friday Ford, and How to Thrive in the Virtual Workplace. Robert is also a global keynote speaker who has spoken on the TEDx stage and the host of the popular Elevate podcast. His work has been featured on the Today Show and in Harvard Business Review. Um, Forbes, entrepreneur, fast company, business insider. Above all else, he is passionate about sharing ideas that help people and organizations elevate their performance and reach their full potential. I can test that one because, you know, one of my very first roles was as Solution Partners. Now, welcome, Bob. Thank you so much for being here today. One of the reasons I wanted to invite you to the show, Bob, was to talk about this idea about the importance of helping people elevate to their full potential. Often when I'm consulting with startups, I find that founders have very divergent thoughts about people management. On one end of the spectrum, you have the everyone is replaceable mindset. And on the other, you have the we will retain everyone for forever mentality. What do you think is the right approach and how can founders develop the right skill set to navigate this? It feels like the easy answer is somewhere in the middle. Um, but look, I, I always say there's a lot of ways to run a business. There's a lot of ways to make money. Sometimes it's how do you want to wake up and look at yourself in, in the mirror every day? Or how do you want to be remembered or a legacy or, again, what feels good? So cl- clearly Silicon Valley has popularized the Turnum and, and, and Burnham uh, uh, approach. It, what's interesting is even in a lot of these companies that are on best places to work in Glassdoor and all this stuff, the, the tenure is probably barely two years across the uh, average average organization. So I, you know, someone, someone says like sort of culture is what you tolerate. So I have a slide, you know, on one side is the sort of authoritarian turn and burn. And the other side is like the, the family business, you know, where everyone's family and no one gets fired and you know, it doesn't matter what you do. I like, I, I think there is a win-win of how do you um, treat people well, focus on building them up and building their capacity holistically as a talent development strategy, but then also understand that some people aren't going to be in the right job or the right company and there's a better situation for them. And 
again, if, if it's what you tolerate and you just ignore performance uh, or ignore outcomes because uh, you know you you like that person or you're rooting for them, that also sends that signal to everyone else in their company. So I, I think that the the midpoint can be balanced. It's it's difficult because I always say like you're everyone's biggest champion, you're rooting for them, but then you do have to have discussions. And in those cases, honestly, I think for a lot of the people, it's it's they they're not doing the right thing. I think everyone has the potential to be great at something. There are some things that I'd be really, really bad at. And it didn't matter how many times you told me to get better at it. Like I I like new and different. I'm not good at repetition. So if I'm sitting in a job and it's all about repetition and just doing the same, like I, I'm, I'm not going to be good. I'm going to get a performance warning. It would be better for someone to say, "Hey, I think you need to be in a different role." And then, by the way, if the company's roles are all about managing assembly line and repetition, maybe there's a different company that's a better choice. So there's also the stigma about people that leave us, um, and that you know if they're not good here, then they're they you know they're not good overall. I think that's a, a real jaded viewpoint as well. So there, it, it kind of sounds like what you're alluding to is, is higher, better, right? You know, like the, maybe the strategy isn't necessarily um, whether you need to be draconian or not draconian. It's hire people in the right role, challenge them in the right way. And you, this maybe doesn't become a problem. Uh, look, if you, if you hire well, it solves a lot of your problems. But again, what, is, what does well mean? So to me, it's someone who has high aptitude and who really aligns with your values. I know there's a lot of debate about the word culture fit. I think people are getting into a semantical argument around, you know, I, I think every organization has a, has a culture, right? Culture fit, I don't, and I understand what people in first culture add. You don't want people that are all carbon copies of each other, right? But when you're in an organization, you are on a mission, you need some shared values and, and, and principles. So, yeah, I think you're, you want to be really cognizant about the right type of people uh, overall. But, but that, that's not the end of the game. The end of the game is then, hey, like, B, you might come work for our organization and, and, and look, this may have been the truth. And it may be great for a year or two. And then you want to do something different. And like, that's fine. Like we just, we need to have a discussion around that or we don't have the job that you want or otherwise, but this is where I think these things get, get overly emotional rather than, you know, uh, objective. But while someone's in your organization, I think that the organization should be focused on making them better holistically and overall. Like how do we raise the capacity level so that people can, can really meet their potential understanding that, it won't work all the time, or even if it does, it might not be the right role. It might not be the right job um, for someone. So, I, I think you're trying to build from within. But yes, it, it it all of these things are made more difficult if you don't hire well. And to me, hire well is is the person a fit for your culture? Not are they a culture fit per se? And are they do they have aptitude and want to learn and want to get better? Particularly if you're in a growth company. It, again, very different working for a family business that wants to grow 4% and do the same thing over and over and over every year than a business that wants to grow 30% and constantly be changing. I'd argue that they're very different personas that would be you know, successful in either of those businesses. What's better to you, Robert? Uh, someone who can get the job done or someone who fits or who everyone likes? What do you think leads to better performance? Better performance is not necessarily everyone who anyone likes. I think the biggest danger for an organization is someone drew me a, a, a two by two matrix when I was 22 years old. And they said, uh, you know, 
good at their job, not good at their job. Everyone likes them. Everyone doesn't like them. And they said that not good at their job, but everyone likes them is the most dangerous person <laughs> in your organization. So I, I, it depends on why you're not liked, right? We don't, again, we don't have to have the same political viewpoints. We don't have to have the same friends and musical tastes. Like that sometimes personal preferences get in the pace of like, are you getting, are, are you, adhering to the basic cultural principles like if we have a respect thing and you're disrespectful to everyone that's going to be really hard right because that's a cultural value but are you getting a job one and doing a, doing a great job um I, I do think that's where we run into some danger of like why, why why do we not like someone right we always say if they're hitting all their kpis they're doing their job well and they're high score high on our cultural things that that actually is the way that you should look at their review. And that actually takes out a lot of bias because you might be saying some other things that fall between the lines, but I would come back to Tam's crushing her KPIs and exactly what, you know, we told them that they were going to have to do. And also um, they score very high on our values. So I'm unclear what the <laughs> problem is here. Right. Is it kind of like a trick question? I mean, <laughs> in the sense that how could you be crushing it if nobody liked you? That would be a very hard hill to climb over that nobody likes you, but you're still crushing it. Great question. Yeah. And this is where I don't recommend using these things for hiring because I think they become discriminatory. But we use a lot of culture assessments, communication assessments. When you do a bunch of these things, particularly the why, you start to see core differences in the way that people approach communications and stuff. And you start to identify, oh, I now I see why B and I are always having this, like, B is a high fact finder, and I am a quick whatever. So when we get into these discussions, like, we we have literally contradicting styles. I, I've actually, I think if you understand your, like, you do enough of these things and you start seeing patterns. I know B, you've mm -hmm. done a bunch over the year. And when you understand yours and you understand other people's, you start to really understand how to manage some of these communication things. So to me, as a leader, too, core values, personal core values and, and things like your personal why go deep into this. So here's an example that comes up a lot. Again, has nothing to do with the workplace per se. But if everyone has this information, there are better outcomes available. So when I've done personal core value work with people and there comes some value of trust as a personal core value for someone. I, first of all, a lot of these core values come from formative, mostly negative, but some positive childhood experiences. So when we see that someone really has a core value of trust in, in one of these leadership things, I might say, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask you what the story is, but did you have a violation of trust earlier in your childhood? And usually they don't even have to answer. I can see the look in their face or maybe even a tear. Like, like it's, it's deep, right? And then you get into a discussion that says, and you start looking where they're running into problems with their team and their management style, and here's what happens 99% of the time. When someone on their team is five minutes late for a meeting, when they said they were going to do it on Tuesday and they don't do it till Wednesday, when one of their explanations about where they are doesn't make a lot of sense, this hits like core visceral, this person cannot be trusted in the manager types of things, and they throw them in a penalty box and they're probably not ever getting out. If the manager is actually able to go to the employee and say, just so you know, on my team, trust is really important. It's a personal core value of mine. Here are ways that like aren't helpful you know, to the trust dynamic. It really helps someone understanding that there's a lot of things that they can do with that leader, but probably missing a deadline is not <laughs> one of the ones they want to do. And 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 that leader is also like, oh, I'm I'm having like these are this is 
it is like you know there's someone was five minutes late to a meeting but that is triggering like deep things that this is a person can't be trusted maybe i need to take a step back and be a little more objective so the more i've gotten into this like deep core value work with people the more or if you get into their whys which is another system we use you start to really realize some stuff about yourself and others that i think can help bridge some of these communication gaps. are you advocating for like a wendy rhodes character from billions do you know that character like this kind of let me get into your childhood oh is this the, the therapist yes no, in fact, I just wrote a whole article about Gen, you know, that that yesterday on LinkedIn, which is that Gen Z, you know, people who haven't graduated in the workplace said that the forty percent of them want uh, therapists. You know, there's something about mental health in the workplace, and, and I made a joke that like, well, you, well, we've seen it on Ted Lasso and Billions. It will not work very well in most organizations. You should. Your therapy should probably be outside of your workplace and not not in your workplace. Well, so I just have to like comment on um, Bob's point about having people do some actual work to understand the why behind things. The first time I took a personality test of some sort was at Acceleration Partners, and it was a disc, right? And at the time, um, I got my result back, and it was a capital D. Like, it's just like there were like nothing. I was just going to say, I don't remember, but I'm guessing you were a high I, I'm, D. I'm yeah. a huge D, right? And then the person who um, was my manager at the time was very opposite. And so it was really great because – Yes, they were, they were an S. Yes, and I was just like, why don't we not get along? <laughs> like, I was like, why is it that, like, every time we have a conversation, I feel like there's friction? And after I got the test back, I was like, oh, we're the exact opposite of each other. So this is a problem, actually. And so I had to, I had to adapt. I share that because it is, it was a, it's a very important moment for me um, because I think uh, I, I'm one of those people who gets along with just about everyone. And so oftentimes my personality and my energy makes up for other things that I'm not great at. And if the person is the exact opposite of me, they're not taking that energy, right? And, and that personality and going, oh, that's a great thing. They're like, actually, I'm looking for different qualities from you. And so it taught me a lot about adapting. And you know, it's kind of funny. I was at a a session where someone was teaching. It was basically DISC, but it was in a different thing. And, and it was all couples. And and she pointed out and had people stand. People mostly married the opposite <laughs> quadrant from themselves because there's some overall harmony. Now, they fought exactly about the differences that you would expect on a day-to-day basis. But but actually, there was some harmony in, in, in the differences. I think it's the same thing. If you're a D, that S person is going to be a slow defense and that's the opposite steady not responsive they're dragging me they're holding me back but it's also the person that keeps you out of trouble and like from making a really like you know too quick and rash decision so it it is it is interesting i I just think the more awareness the more you're able to bridge some of those things i think it's be on our earlier podcast one of the things that we talked about is a lot of these companies are talking about culture and then realize a kind of bring your whole self to work and i think we're now in a in an age where that's a backfiring for some people and I think yeah. that companies that championed diversity are now kind of pulling back on these things. I think one of the cases we talked about was Disney and the whole thing with Disney in Florida, the don't say gay bill, things like that. And I think that it goes to this where the question really is, is when a company is on a mission, much like a platoon is on a mission or an army is on a mission. Yeah, there are there are always sacrifices as being part of a team, right? That's yeah. right. That conformity <laughs> is whatever what they strive for. The army, the military does not preach bring yourself. Um, and my question is, how do you create culture 
in the face of a mission that requires singleness that may be lost with diversity. So, so that is like a, an excellent question. This, this could almost be a four-hour discussion because I think you hit on the struggle for every leader in the workplace these days. That because I, I, I look last year during the Great Resignation. It, the the pendulum switched from employer power to employee power. And by the way, employees acted just as bad as all the employers that they said and all the stuff, not showing up for interviews, ghosting people, not showing up for jobs, making demands that they're going to quit. If, like This is all the stuff that they blame their bosses for doing for years. So power is corrupting. Let's not, let's not, let's, let's be honest about this. And in the middle of this, they said, look, I get it that this person will pay you $30,000 more. You can do this or whatever. But like, we can't, you know, it can't be how do you optimize the situation for each individual. A leader's got to think of the team, whatever. So I think the in between, as you just pointed out, is every company's got to have a goal and a mission, a vision that something that resonates with people. Why are we doing this? Like again, on a basketball team, if everyone wants to shoot every point, it's going to be a terrible team. Like someone's got to pass. So why are we doing this? And do we agree to some basic? Not are we all the same, but do we agree to some basic shared principles that we want to? Uh, live by. And that is hopefully what makes someone want to work there. But but I agree with you. I, I think the concept of, I, to me, bring your whole self to work or work, work-life integration is a is more of a puzzle thing, right? It is, if, if hey, if you want to go to a rally, you should take that day off. If you want to, um, if you need a mental health day, go get that support or be happy to talk to you. I, I shouldn't be your therapist as your boss. I shouldn't, you know, amateur play around with this or otherwise. We match donations to where you want to give. Like I, I, there is a really weird thing going on where, again, where people in Gen Z are saying, "I want to work for a company that supports my viewpoints and my whatever." Well, isn't that antithetical to diversity? Because <laughs> you're saying, I, just, "I." So, what about the viewpoints that people have in the company that you don't support? Now you're saying, I, I, "Like this is this is why I think it's a really complicated thing," and I think that. Um, I think you should bring your whole self to work and that who you are is who you are. But sometimes maybe your politics and your this and all this stuff, it, maybe it's not better off as a workplace discussion. Maybe how what are we doing today to do this is is, is, is a workplace discussion. So I agree with you. I think there is a, is a backlash. I think there is some exhaustion. I think there's a, a middle ground on all of this stuff. <laughs> What's your thesis on the future of work? We are in this age now where we're, is there a recession coming? We don't know. Is that going to be the great reset of the great resignation? I don't know. Yeah. What, what do you say? I just wrote an article. I'm very about the pendulum mm-hmm. switching too hard and employees now, employers now trying to get retribution on all the thing on the other day. I, I, like, can't we just meet in the middle? Can we agree that not showing up for interviews and, ghost, and, and ghosting people after they interview are both bad human behaviors and we shouldn't do either of them? Like, no matter how much you know, power sway we have, like, this is, I just think it's very interesting that everything that employees criticize employers for, they're, they're now doing the, the, the same behavior. And by the way, an employee is also an employer in a different context. It just, you know, depends on which day of the the week it is. I, I think it's going to be interesting to watch who wants to be a leader today with these inherently like longer list of responsibilities and some of the people who are really passionate about causes and things that aren't necessarily related to the business 
it'll be interesting. I don't know the answer. Will they start some businesses and say, this is our mission, but then they don't pay attention at all to whether their customers like the product and their finances and the company goes out of business and the people lose the job. I mean, it's hard enough to run a business. The, 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 I keep talking to business owners and leaders and they're like, I'm just exhausted. I'm exhausted. Like, you know, now we're back to almost a recession after a boom. And it's hard enough for me to create a place to work, make sure we're having a culture that's diverse and belonging, and then feeling like I need to understand and keep up on every social issue that goes on in the world and declare, you know, my opinion on it. And I, I think it's going to be very interesting on, on, where this goes and do people expect that of leaders and and i think if that's the case you are going to see shorter and shorter leadership <laughs> tenures because i think it's i think it's burning people out uh all the all the things they're expected to be responsible for around that that aren't within their company's walls but are outside of their company's walls uh or will there be more of a backlash and you'll see more companies saying look we are we try to be a great place of work. We try to be inclusive. If you're looking for political statements every day, if you're looking for this, if you're looking for that, like that's not us. Like go find another go find another place to work. Particularly in the B2B space, I understand that B2C companies have to focus on their image and their brand and their values and what they stand for to the end consumer. I think it feels a little more forced in a lot of these B2B companies where it's really not impacting the buyer of their product and service as much. It's a little performative, you know, some of the things that they're doing and talking about. There's two things there. So first there is, I think that there's a crisis of leadership, right? And and to your point, first of all, I think that most leaders, so people, so generally speaking, if you are a leader in many organizations, especially any like large organizations, you probably have had a career that's, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, unless you're like the, yeah. the one kid <laughs> who um, happened to uh, found their own company at like 25 and, and you're doing it. And so I do think that there's we're asking folks to change very rapidly, right? Without actually giving them the tools to change. And we are and we are adding. We are not taking anything away, right? That is another key. It, it, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I was at I was at a great talk. Um, um, uh, so it was like Northwestern University's Council of One Hundred. So Council of One Hundred is a women focused alumni group. And one of the, the the person who spoke was a former head of a, a major studio and who had just started her own studio. And she's like, I've been doing this for 35 years she's like i've never had to care about any of this before. and she's like and i do she's like i personally care about it but she's like but i've never had to do it from a professional standpoint right. and so she's like so when you know um george floyd happened for instance she said you know she, her team came to her and said you have to say something about george floyd and she's like but what do i say she's like i'm pissed off that it happened she's yeah. like but we also have some very conservative people here right who are gonna be like well maybe he deserved it. And she's like, and I can't just fire a person who thinks that, right? I just can't, like, yeah. that's not legal. I can't just fire them for thinking that. And it was such an interesting moment for me because, again, I, I do think there's a crisis leadership is one, um, to your point, it is burning out folks who already um, have been leaders for a long time. But secondly, how do you even get skills to to do that, right? There's some people, I think, who are innately able to nimbly navigate each of these different complex situations. And I think that other people are just like, I wish there was a class that could just explain to me how I'm supposed to do this. But I think this is a great point to actually also pivot to something I really want to get into here, because um, obviously you're a great culture expert, but you're also like this perennial founder. Right. Um, and so, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what drives you as a founder? And then also one of the things I'm always curious about is like, how can someone determine if they are founder material or not? Like if they have what it takes to be a founder? 
Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think, you know, what I typically someone starts something because they believe they can do it better. At some point, they would rather be in control of their own destiny that that they that the upside of being in control of their own destiny is higher than the risk of of doing the same thing. Um, and, 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 and the predictability. And, and, and I think I, to me, there's, there's two groups and I think they're distinctive. And I think that there are some different qualities. I think there's an entrepreneur. So an entrepreneur like is willing to take some risk and, and says, look, this has to happen or I have to die trying because it's so much harder (laughs) than people think. And even the successes, like I listen to how I built this. And like, when you hear all those, like almost like they, you know, the, the wild success and then all the near-death experiences where someone else might have stopped or quit or otherwise. So it's got to be meaningful enough to want to go forward with it. I think also an entrepreneur gets comfortable with, okay, there's here and we're going to go here, but like it is not going to be a straight line. It is going to be a mess and I'm willing to just take the first step. There's entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are really helpful to larger organizations. I think they're the people who have new ideas. They're creative. They launch a new thing. But they like doing that under the blanket of freedom by which the, you know, to take from a few good men, the blanket of freedom by from which the larger corporation provides. And while they want to work on the new stuff, they're not they're not willing to take the risk. And they tend to be people who a little more need to Whenever I've seen someone not want to start something because it's like they need to know how every inning is going to be played before the ninth inning, I I, I doubt that they're going to be great at entrepreneurship because it, it's just not going to be whatever you think it's going to be. <laughs> you just have to adapt. So when they need that high level of predictability or control, it feels a little more like an entrepreneur than than an entrepreneur. So I, I actually think entrepreneurs are super helpful for organizations and some of them do decide to quit. And go on. Um, but I, I think that's the biggest difference is is comfortable with the unknown, comfortable with the ups and downs, um, but really like believe in it so much, oftentimes too much. Look, I think there's a very fine line between and we're seeing in all the corporate malfeasance, you know, podcasts and movies on right now around at some point your self-delusion be, can even turn into fraud, right? Uh, it, 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 it is a thinner line than one would believe around how much vision and perseverance and you know some of the things that people thought were crazy and then we went to the moon and some of the things that people said around, I can make blood testing work on a drop of blood and then you know slowly find out that it's not going to work. The decision to become a founder um, oftentimes has changed, right? Because I do yeah. think that it used to be much, much harder. But, you know, Tam and I can both talk about the fact that now with how easy it is to actually start a company, there's so many tools out there. There's so easy to build an app, for instance. So, you know, there's a lot of people who just like decide to jump into the deep end. And I think also add into the fact that it's easier now than ever to to have various funding sources to kind of give you the runway that you probably, whether you deserve it or not, right? right? Because not every idea actually deserves to be funded. Um, to to actually just kind of have a business that lacks business fundamentals, or have a, I think I have a product, right? I think the one thing I think it's become easier to build a product or an MVP. A product isn't necessarily a business. I think some people as don't get you know don't don't develop that distinction as it starts getting some some legs. Yeah, and a lot of founders seek out funding early nowadays, 
And can you elaborate on how you started out in your companies? And are you a fan of founders taking on early investments? Why or why not? Yeah, and this just depends on what type of person you are, right? I started a service business. Most people fund a service business. They don't need money, right? They do some consulting. They get more than they can do. They bring in another person. They pay them some money. And so it, it, it's sort of evergreen, right? There's no product to build where, where it costs money up front. So I like proving that something is viable and makes money and sustainable. That's less of the VC world market, right? I, I and and you know having done a deal like I, I resonate more with the private equity world, which is kind of like you hit doubles and triples and you don't really strike out um, as much. Because I also think it's really important to figure out what people value um, and what they're willing to to pay for. Obviously, that's different than if you're going into a winner take all market and it's about it's about speed and otherwise but that's giving up control so it just depends on what you want i i think the 37 signals folks base camp folks ha- have done some great stuff over the years more controversial lately but the stuff from 10 years ago great stuff i would say they came out with how you know a lot of people made fun of lifestyle businesses like businesses that just made money and provided a good whatever and it was all way too focused on the vc world which is a one out of you know, 10 business and that, and that, that world had sort of, you know, looked down on these lifestyle businesses. We're just good businesses that were making money and, and growing. And, and, and this was some stuff they talked about 10 years ago. And I, and I think they were dead on, which is there's a lot of ways to run a business. There's a lot of ways to make money. They're different. Like I said, you could do the churn and burn. You can do the, we're going to build our people. I, I think it's what's more authentic to you, but there's always a trade-off. I see founders raising money a lot and they'll send me their deck and I'm like, hey, there's no slides at the end about how you're going to liquidate this business. You're asking people to put money into it. And how are they going to get their investment back? You've completely ignored you know, pitching to investors how they're going to get a return on your investment. Once you do this, there's no going back. There's no being a small, profitable business once you raise $5 million. So I always think start with the end in mind and work backwards. Um you know, people. Some people say if you're not doing ideas that can change the world and going for 10x, then you're not making a difference. I mean, what we need to understand, what they actually said was in the presentation 10 years ago. You see, and they were correlating this to business. You see the LeBron Jameses, you see the Michael Jordans make the NBA, and so everyone think, else thinks they should drop out of school. You know, I don't think people realize how the Amazons and the Facebook that you get one or two of these a decade. And, you know, it may be a lot of luck and timing as to like the ability to lose a ton of money and raise a ton of money and have that have that work. We don't see the nine out of 10 that failed doing that. We see the you know, we see that we don't see the guy who didn't make the NBA and wish he had finished his senior year. We hear about, you know, the ones for whom it worked. Yeah. Now, the the history is really written by the victors, right? So, you know, the losers don't often get a chance to to kind of outline losing. It's survivorship bias. Uh, Nassim Tlaib has written all about this, right? We look at we we, we, when we look at the sample, we completely ignore the losers. And also losing is not necessarily a bad thing, right? I actually think that. You recently had one of your companies get acquired, and you also made the decision to step down as CEO at another one of your companies. I'm curious about how you, you know, what went into making these decisions. And also, is there a way for a founder to know when they should step aside? Yeah. So I'll make a generalization more about entrepreneurs. I think professional CEOs might be different. Most entrepreneurs, 
we're not A students. Um, in fact, they're probably doing other stuff and failing out of school or getting C's. They didn't fit into the boxes and, and like they, you know, they weren't really rewarded by society for following the game plan early on in life. And, and, and I know this is sort of for me. And so then they figure out something. They figure they love business. They fit, really is where their creativity and risk taking is rewarded uh, and all this stuff. And, and it starts going well. And that becomes their identity. And, and I think as the business grows and otherwise, they're the CEO. But at some point, you actually, and you know, I wrote about this in my next book, you've got to take a look and be like, do I like what I'm doing? So for me, with the job of CEO and being the RMD department and stuff when the company was 50 was very different than after we did a deal with an investment partner and we're 300 people and we're managing uh, investors and a management team and all this stuff. I, if I really was honest with myself, that's not my best contribution in the role that I want to do. There was someone else better to do that. So I think you, there needs to be this discussion ongoing where if you take yourself out of the ego of, of something in terms of saying, what do I want to do? And what does the company need? And are those aligned? And that may change at $5 million in revenue or $10 million in revenue. Patrick Lencioni wrote a great book called The Motive on this recently. Um, I think it was impactful on me. I had already made my decision. But I was actually able to realize that that I, even though it seems hard to give up the CEO role, the job of the CEO at Acceleration Partners was better suited by someone else at that point. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, it, it's one of the things that, uh, from a personal standpoint, ob- observing so many companies have these major downturns. Like a, a great example to me is Peloton. Like it was very clear to me that the CEO of Peloton didn't really have the skills. Like the the old CEO founder of Peloton didn't he didn't really have the skill set to navigate the complexity of actually scaling up a sustainable business. And it was like, why did you wait until after the business suffered? Right. You could have taken yeah. a step away and said, I need someone who's going to be a zero to a hundred guy. And he I said, he's going to go launch something new and book. By the way, most people couldn't have done. If you hear the early stories about how he, he, there's a story about, I mean, he was out of money. He borrowed from his IRA. The prototype came in 40% too big and they needed to do a photo shoot. So they went and found like a six, nine woman to get on the bike to make it proportional. You know, these are the things that entrepreneurs do. He went to dinner with his wife. She yeah. kept saying, will you go to dinner with me? He's like, I will only go to dinner with you if you talk about whose parents we're going to live with when Peloton goes bankrupt because we basically put all of our money. Like this is the type of thing that the CEO running it now could not have done. Conversely, someone with that mindset is probably not interested in running global logistics operations. Again, if we look at the folks that have done it, this is the problem. This is the survey. You look at a Bezos or maybe not a Zuckerberg because I think he hasn't done those pieces. But let's just objectively maybe look at a Musk or a Bezos who's gone all the way through. That is the one in 10 million, <laughs> right? That, that's, that's, again, people are going to point to that. I actually think people point to exceptions rather than you know, rules or majorities, they're going to point to that. And you'd say, actually pointing to that would tell me that it didn't work in 99.9% of of the cases, uh, rather than pointing out to the point one where it worked very visibly. Well, I love that. So actually, uh, so that's, that's, that's a little insight right there, right? Is that the majority of what we see are actually the exceptions, right? And so we should be digging below to figure out what is the actual rule that we should be thinking that, that, that actually exists. I write about this a lot. I see this mistake in leaders. They point to exceptions um, rather than if you want to be right more often than not, you should develop rubrics that are more time tested, particularly if you're making the same decision over and over. So, for example, 
um, there's data around uh, counteroffers that like within 18 months, 90% of the people who accepted a counteroffer are gone from the company and it has terrible outcomes. Well, if I had that data, I would be better off saying, you know, as a company, we don't counteroffer, so, which is what we've done historically. But some manager is going to come to me and they're going to say, or someone's going to point to the exception of an organization and they're going to say, look at B, we countered B and B's here. And then they're going to convince people to do something that's wrong 90% of the time <laughs> when it, 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 I know that they have the living example of B wouldn't have been here if we had done that. I say, yeah, B wouldn't have been here, but we also wouldn't have made those other nine mistakes. So I see a lot of people pointing to exceptions. There's also a thing I talked about in my podcast with Stanley McChrystal lately where people focus on an outcome of a really bad decision that was lucky and worked out well versus what the military does is they go back and they say, with the information that you had at the time, was that the right decision? And would you make that 10 out of 10 times? Or did you just get really lucky and, and you made the wrong decision, right? Driving home drunk and getting away with it is not the right decision. Like, you know, no parent would say to a kid, you know what? Nice job. <laughs> like good outcome. <laughs> like that, 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 but that's the same logic that we use in, in, in business decision-making where we look at just the result and not what, what were the factors at the time. So what you're really saying is that we all need to be better parents <laughs> in the business world. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or there's some logics that, that would work better in the business world around. And we do that. I, I had a discussion with someone actually for an outcome that worked out. Okay. Um, a difficult discussion, but but from a decision where they went against all their checks and balances, and everyone told them not to do it, and it kind of worked out, but it wasn't the right decision. And 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 if you went back to the time, they just they 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 did one of these. I'm going to go at it alone, and it, I I don't think it was the right decision. Mm -hmm. Albert, if you had to go back to your one percent <laughs> people, the Bezos and the Musk, do you think that they were that? methodical in decision making in the way that you're describing very right. good um also there are people that were willing to sacrifice other things in their life and stuff to you know sometimes when someone's willing to put 120 hours a week in and you have 30 you know they're, they're ahead but being in the right place at the right time when people go back and look at history you know Having a business that's got a great product and solution right as a market takes off and being yeah. in the right time. I mean, these are the these are the folks over history, whether it's oil or transportation or energy, you know, they've made disproportionate wealth and their companies have done incredibly well. Not I'm not to right. say that, you know, they weren't involved in that, but it's typically at a at a massive macro but revolution. I don't think that they are that prescriptive in their decision making. They do make decisions based on just a lot of gutter insight. But I also will say to that, they also have yeah. a lot of money to make a lot of mistakes. And that is the other fundamental difference that a lot of people don't understand. They think they can go on a hunch. And I say, you got to have a lot of money to fund the many mistakes that you're going to be making along the way. Jeff Bezos was very clear that we're going to lose billions of dollars before we make a dollar. And he had enough people Correct. that are willing to back that vision because they believed in him. So he had the runway to make these mistakes and probably fail 99% uh, of the time. And that 1% was the – but not a lot of people have that war chest. So, so that is an yeah. excellent point. I, I have talked about a venture-backed company can, can make a lot of mistakes mm -hmm. and survive. A company that's self-funded cannot. Right. Like, And so – I actually think sometimes you make better choices, you know, with 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 fewer means, right? I, I mean, it forces you 
to, to think about, you know, how you're going to do that. That's a whole nother podcast, Robert. That's a whole nother <laughs> debate. It's a whole nother debate. Cause I would argue to you, Uber, who's still struggling to, to turn a profit, would not have proved this point of a sharing economy if they didn't have just as much money as it did. It takes a lot of money to, to create a new behavior. You're saying they, they needed, that they benefited by not having constraints. Uh, the, yeah, yeah, they needed to blitz scale. There's no other way that Uber would have worked bootstrapping the way they did because the concept that they built is quite simple. It was not technology. Well, I agree with you. And, and, and the, you know, when they're painted, and look, they, Uber did some bad stuff, but when they're painted as the evil whatever company, remember, they're trying to displace this taxi monopoly, which was... <laughs> that takes the war, just, and they still couldn't turn a profit, which is for some things. And I think that as a strategist, you know, I try to put things in these boxes and to say with this idea, yeah. to prove this point, it's going to cost a lot of money just because of what it is. Uber's yeah. one of them. Yeah, I, I think you, you could make the blitzscaling argument for a lot of these businesses. Um, I think in others, you could say maybe if they had some constraints, they would have been a little more focused in their decision making, right? There's <laughs> there are probably a lot of different narratives. I do think too much money is to their detriment. You take something like a Zoom pizza, SoftBank gave them $350 million. At the end of the yeah. day, this was a pizza company. It was valued at one of the things I'm kind of curious about, Bob, you know, in your Friday Forward newsletter, you have a quote in every newsletter. I'm kind of curious, like, what is your favorite quote? What's the one that you're like, actually, this is the one I, I think about or use all the time? Huh, that's <laughs> the one I find myself saying the most. I don't know if it's my. So uh, I'll give you two. One I find saying myself the most, particularly when someone's presenting a problem, is the Warren Buffett quote, uh, show me the behavior and I'll tell you the incentive. <laughs> Um, because I, 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 and and that quote is interesting because it actually works if you invert it, and I'm not sure which way it is. Show me the behavior, I'll tell you the incentive, or show me the incentive, and I'll tell you the behavior. But, but it works both ways. So a lot of times when people aren't getting the right outcome, I find that they don't have the right incentive system. The the one I, you're asking, it's like choosing my children. Um, the one I've always liked holistically. I heard someone say it this week, and it and it, and it felt good to me, so I'll go with that. I like the quote. I used to give a quote to a teacher in a yoga class who said it, but then I realized it was more famous than that. Most most misquotes are misattributed, but how we do anything is how we do everything. Uh, I think it's a really good motto for for life. Um, so uh, I, I think like, you know, when you talk about gratitude or day to day or thinking about like, you know, the big picture, I just think it's very encompassing. Like and then finally, is there anything that you would like to, sh they're both really good quotes, but is there anything that you would like to share with our audience that has, hasn't already been discussed? I know you have a book coming out soon. Um, uh, no, I mean, Friday, if they're interested in Friday Forward, the books of the podcast, it's all at uh, robertglazer.com. Also, the course I talked about on core values, if people want to spend some work on understanding their core values, it's on there too. It's about an hour course and I've had over a thousand people do it. And I, it, it's really some interesting breakthroughs when people, I think most of us kind of have a feeling of some of our values, but it's, to me, it's really different when you can articulate it because then you're like, oh, I should not do this. I should do this. <laughs> to me, it's the ultimate sort of decision-making rubric. So they can find all, all that stuff at uh, robertglazer.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for coming on. Um, one of the things, uh, so just as a final thought, so I technically haven't worked for Solution Partners, I think, for six or seven years, Time maybe a little bit longer than that. But 
I legitimately like just emailed Bob um, earlier this year and was just like, hey, I, I want to ask some career advice. I think you're a good person to ask this to. And he's like, here's my phone number, you know, text me, we'll set up some time. And so if there's nothing else that comes out of this conversation is be the type of leader that someone can reach out to out of nowhere and you can still be helpful. I, I think that's a really great kindness and it's a really great reflection. Uh, thank you. And like, as I said before, before yeah, I, I mean, people come to your company, they move on to your alumni. I think this is the new world of networks. And, and I, I and I think, you know, it's just, it's just about how can, how can you help people do better, you know, within your company or, or outside your company? I mean, that, that's, that's what everyone should hope to do. Nice to meet you, Bob. Yeah. Nice to meet you too. It sounds like we could, we could have five more, we could break up five topics and talk about them for <laughs> an hour each. Thank you so much for listening to the Drops Podcast. We love having you. We love your feedback. Please do connect with us across social media. We are the Drops Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And we also have a great email, thedropspodcast at gmail.com. You can send in any questions that you have, and we definitely would love to answer them on the podcast. Feel free to ask just about anything because we have experienced a ton of different things. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Drops Podcast.